This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Peter Ricketts. Lord Ricketts was chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee, UK permanent representative to NATO, permanent secretary in the Foreign Office, Britain's first national security advisor, and ambassador to France. He was also the author of Hard Choices, a new book, What Britain Does Next. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thank you, Paul. Right. We're going to crack on straight away with uh, something you say early on in the book, and I quote uh, your words back at you, Peter. Life outside the EU is full of risks for Britain. Brexit does at least create the opportunity to come to grips at last with the uncomfortable truth that the country's image of itself is significantly out of kilter with reality. Please amplify, Peter. Yes, one of the themes of the whole Brexit debate, uh, at least in my mind, was the assumption that Britain could somehow return to a great power global status um, outside the EU, and it was somehow the EU that had been holding Britain back from that. Uh, I felt there's an awful lot of nostalgia in the whole Leave campaign, um, as if there was a role waiting for Britain back at the centre of the Anglosphere, uh, Britannia rules the waves, uh, the trading nation dominating the world that we used to be a century ago. And of course, we're not. And I do think it's been a problem in the whole British debate about the our relationship with Europe and the world, is that there is still an instinctive um, uh, tendency to um, regard our weight in the world as far greater than it really is. We haven't yet come to terms with the fact we're still a strong and important country, but a middle-sized country. And other countries are now far stronger economically and economic blocks like the EU, and that we therefore have to learn a new way of relating to countries which doesn't hark back too much to 1940 um, and a British status that has long passed. Okay, but this analysis of decline, a relative decline, uh, obviously predates Brexit, right? It's been going on for quite some time. So is there a point in, in since the Second World War when, when you just say in your book, the UK was so instrumental uh, as it came out of the Second World War and creating all the international organisations like the UN, and NATO, but is there a point in our post-war history in the UK when you could identify where the, the, the decline really began to, to take hold? I think all European countries have declined in uh, relative terms because the Asian economies and America have been so dynamic and have moved ahead of us. Um, and there's nothing, um, you know, shaming to accept that. Uh, but I think where the European countries have um, done so well is to learn the art of working together um, and making the sum more than the parts economically, not yet fully in terms of foreign policy. And Britain hasn't really done that. I mean, we never really wholeheartedly joined the European project. Now we are out of it, but we can't deny the reality that Britain is still a European power and our success in the world is intimately linked to the capacity to reconstruct a working, pragmatic, constructive relationship with 
the EU as well as European countries. Um, and until we do that, we risk being sidelined, honestly, uh, and we risk the whole Europe argument continuing to crash into our efforts to project ourselves as a global power. And I think that was rather the lesson of the G7 summit in Cornwall, uh, in many ways, rather successful event, but marred by the very public row between Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron about the Northern Ireland Protocol and sausage exports to Northern Ireland. I mean, that's not um, the hallmark of a great country that has liberated itself from the past. You say also that the Western governments, not just the UK, have lost the art of strategic thinking and you analyze in great detail halfway through the book, why, why, why that situation has arisen. You are sort of sympathetic to why, why it is that state of affairs. But nonetheless, you say that that needs to be brought back. How can governments, in this case, the UK government, uh, bring back the art of strategic thinking? I mean, the real lesson for me from that post-war surge of institution building in the late 1940s, when the UN and NATO and the IMF and others came into being, was that Britain was instrumental and influential because it worked effectively with other countries and thought longer term, not just about the immediate economic challenges Britain faced at that time, which were very serious. And we then went into a period of strategic stability, really, under the protective umbrella of the American security guarantee. None of the European countries really had to think in a profound way about longer term strategic issues except perhaps Germany uh, in 1989. And now we are facing a period of disruptive upheaval uh, on a scale, I think, which is comparable to the late 1940s. And yet uh, the political class and, and frankly, civil servants as well in the UK, also elsewhere, have, have lost that capacity to stand back from the immediate um, and think longer term. Part of the problem is that the immediate is just so much more compelling now than it was in the 1940s, you know, where they didn't have 24-7 media. They certainly didn't have social media. They didn't have all the intense pressures that modern democratic politicians labor under. Um, and in many ways, they're, you know, they're good for accountability to the citizen, but they crowd out any space for longer term um, systematic thinking about uh, issues which aren't actually punching you in the nose right now, but might loom up and be serious in one year or five years' time. And that's the art that we've got to relearn now, particularly in Britain. I don't think we can expect the democratic politicians to be doing that. They are coping with the immediate firefights that they constantly um, uh, have, to, have to contend with. It's up to the civil servants and to others, to academics, um, uh, commentators, the press, parliamentarians, to help governments look beyond the immediate and take stock of what are the big issues looming up, like climate change. We now know the public health risk is a very serious one, but also what about the stability of our internet, You know, the, the connective tissue of our modern society? I don't think there's much space at the moment in politics to be thinking about those issues. But you do start your analysis of why there's this lost art of strategic thinking by quoting Robert McNamara almost 60 years ago when he says, there is no longer such a thing as strategy, there is only crisis management. But so it was ever thus and ever will be that politicians have to deal with crises. If you think back to um, the middle of the Second World War, 1941, Churchill and Roosevelt took time to go and sit on warships in Placentia Bay in Canada and to work out the Atlantic Charter, which was really the vision of the future peace. 
didn't become possible to implement it for a further four years. Uh, Macmillan, uh, in 1960, beset with all sorts of problems, um, commissioned a long strategic study to think about Britain's position 10 years from then, uh, from which uh, he derived both the importance of applying to join the EU, well, that ran into the goals brick wall to begin with, and also to consolidate the relationship with the US by going and persuading Kennedy to give us the Polaris nuclear missile system. Those were long-term strategic decisions um, to embark on a path that finally only bore fruit year, years later. And, and I think we have lost that, but I think it is important. Yes, McNamara is so right that government these days is crisis management. When we set up the National Security Council um, in 2010, I was the first British National Security Advisor. We hoped it would be a place for ministers to be able to think strategically. But sure enough, it got sucked down into crisis management day by day, um, the Libya conflict and, and counterterrorism and all the things that we had to cope with uh, almost minute by minute. So there too, we didn't find we had an instrument to think strategically. Uh, therefore, as I say, I, I don't think we can expect politicians to do it. But somewhere in government, senior people, experienced people need to be sitting down and also trying to think about the longer term as well as coping with the immediate crisis. You do, to be fair, throughout the book, try to find ways forward uh, rather than just plotting and observing this relative decline in the UK uh, and the West in some cases. Uh, and you say another quote back at you, Peter. If Britain is to re-establish an influential role in international affairs, ministers will have to be ready to take risks and show agility in spotting opportunities to influence the course of events. What do you mean by that, ready to take risks? I mean that British ministers tend to be very risk averse when it comes to taking initiatives in foreign policy. Um, and I contrast that with the French, who are much more entrepreneurial uh, in promoting la gloire de la France with um, calling for international conferences in Paris to try to bring parties together and make progress in whatever international crisis it is. Whereas British ministers traditionally tend to be extremely worried that anything they suggest might fall flat on its face, they might be dragged up in front of parliament, uh, you know, and their careers might be damaged. So there's a risk aversion, um, I think, built in because of the very, very close parliamentary scrutiny of a kind that actually doesn't exist in France, which tends to mean that Britain isn't out there taking initiatives, proposing ideas, floating proposals in the way that particularly France is, others as well. And I think now we're out of the EU and we're not involved in that daily process of uh, harmonizing and aligning views with other EU member states. There is an opportunity to see a more entrepreneurial Britain. Uh, it needs two things. It needs good ideas. Well, the civil servants can often provide those. It also needs genuine energy and commitment from ministers to go out and do the hard sell to make uh, to turn in initiatives into concrete proposals and then deliver them and implement them. Uh, there too, Parliament can be a problem because British ministers have to run around Parliament far more than most of their colleagues of similar sized countries. Uh, but if there is energy, uh, as well as good ideas, Britain can be influential. Uh, I think we saw some of that in the, in the G7 summit recently and in NATO as well, Britain's well placed to be influential. But it does mean parliamentarians, politicians committing to the hard work, and to be willing to take a risk occasionally and have an idea put out there that doesn't actually work. That's not the end of the world. To put you slightly on the spot, Peter, uh, on, on, on international organisations and multilateralism more broadly, you, it seems to me you're saying 
sometimes slightly contradictory uh, statements or maybe just me not understanding. So, for example, you say earlier on, all international institutions become obsolete sooner rather than later. You go on to say that UK British ministers like to trot out all these different organisations, institutions that the UK is still a member of, despite our, despite Brexit. Uh, but then you also go on to say that uh, Britain should play a key role in in reforming existing organisations such as NATO and such as the UN, as opposed to, for example, creating new organisations. You obviously see a, a role for the UK in this multilateral world, but you have a certain cynicism about it as well. I do think one of Britain's talents uh, in the world is the capacity to convene and to bring countries together and squeeze out of a meeting a useful outcome. Um, But I am a little bit suspicious of the current fashion for designing new ad hoc groups of democracies. Uh, We've heard about Alliance of Democracies. Uh, Boris Johnson wanted to turn the G7 into a D10, a Democratic 10. In the end, it was 11. Um, And those sort of groupings can have their value. Um, They can be ginger groups, they can um, push for action, but they can't deliver. They don't have staffs and secretariats. For that, you need the established institutions. None of them will last forever, that's true. But the UN, NATO, the IMF, the World Bank have been pretty remarkable over the last 75 years. And they still have that great benefit that they can take an idea and turn it into a practical solution. So while I'm all for the British looking for new ways of uh, doing multilateralism after the pandemic, I don't want us to neglect or regard as sort of old-fashioned organizations like NATO and the UN, which I think are still enormously useful. NATO as the obvious place where the West could talk about China uh, with our closest ally, the Americans. Uh, The UN, partly because of its extraordinary network of specialized agencies like the World Health Organization, We could not reinvent a global organization in the current polarized state of the world. So we'd better make the best use we can of the organization that we have, which is showing its age and it has all sorts of problems. But I think a reformed UN agency system could be very important as part of an early warning system for the world um, in the event of future disruptions in whatever area there might be. Um UK-US relations, Peter, you say that outside the EU, Britain is less useful to the US. So how do you see that relationship developing um, now that the UK has now clearly left the European Union? I think Britain has this conundrum that uh, the relationship with Washington is more important to us now we're no longer in the EU, but we are less useful to the Americans, precisely because we're not sitting around the European Council table influencing the other Europeans. It doesn't mean to say we are, we're not still a very important country to America. There are areas like the defense relationship, the nuclear relationship, intelligence sharing, where Britain is probably the closest ally still of America. But I actually agreed with Boris Johnson when he said recently he doesn't like the term special relationship because it does sound very needy. Um, and of course, the Americans have many special relationships around the world, not just with Britain. So I think... Um, developing a mature, sensible, close relationship with an America which is changing fast. Long gone are the days when European security was the number one priority for the Americans. Now it's absolutely China and the the so-called Indo-Pacific region. Britain can play a part there, but we are not going to be the central ally for America in that part of the world. So let's recognize that. We have many 
um, priorities and interests in common. Some areas where we have a rather different approach, I would say we have a different balance to strike probably in our relationship with China uh, from Americas. But um, let's not um, base the relationship on the assumption that we are somehow unique and special in the eyes of American policymakers because we're not. Well, you make the point that uh, to a large extent, uh, the, the UK will have to in the future make more and more concessions to the US in order to have that any kind of relationship uh, sustainable. And you talk great length also, as you mentioned just now, China. Uh, may, could you maybe um, rehearse those arguments for the benefit of the listeners? Uh, because you do say that the US has a very strong view clearly now of China, which actually is one of the few issues maybe the Republicans and Democrats agree on. Also, to push back slightly, I mean, to be fair to Boris Johnson, who's also under pressure from certain wings of his of the Conservative Party, right? They also have a similar views about China as the, as the US administration does. This is the crucial issue for diplomacy in the next 10 or 20 years. Um, the US relationship with China, whether that develops as purely economic, trade, technological competition, or whether it develops into a more dangerous, even military confrontation, that's going to be crucial for national security in the world. And of course, Britain has a big stake in that. Actually, I thought that the British government's integrated review was good on China um, because it did strike a balance. It recognized that in security terms, Britain will always be aligned with the Americans. Um, if China is posing a threat, whether it's a cyber threat or um, technological dominance over uh, technologies which are crucial for our future security, we need to push back against that in alliance with America and other democratic allies. But commercially, um, now we've left the EU, Britain desperately needs a good working relationship with China, which is soon going to be the largest economy in the world. We need investment from China. We need markets in China. Um, and the Americans, because they are so much bigger, perhaps have less need of a functioning commercial relationship than Britain does. And also, if we're going to make a success of things like the Climate Change Conference, then we need a, a working professional relationship with China on those global issues as well. So we need to carve out something which isn't the Cold War with China, which is a balance between cooperation where possible competition where necessary, uh, and hoping confrontation is not, in the end, needed. And I, as I say, I think that the, our uh, balance within that kind of force field is probably a different one from the Americans, and is probably closer to other European countries, actually. Um, and I would hope that we can make common cause over time with other European countries to maintain that kind of balanced relationship with China. In the area of European foreign security policy, you paint a picture, my reading of your book, when it comes to France, that they have a kind of choice ahead of them, quite which maybe it's already happened, where they have to choose almost between the UK uh, and Germany or the rest of Europe, you like, on how to proceed in terms of foreign security policy cooperation in the future. Uh, is it such a binary choice? Is it, is it possible for the for the French to choose allies on both sides, the UK and Germany? Uh, no, it's not a binary choice. It's more complicated than that, of course. There are some areas of the defense relationship where UK and France have a unique link. Uh, one obviously is nuclear. <clears throat> we are the two nuclear powers and we have agreed to build one single facility in Burgundy for the virtual testing of our nuclear warheads because it was an awful lot cheaper than, than duplicating that. Um, France knows very well that if they need armed forces from another European country to go to combat with them at short notice, 
it's only the Brits. Only the British and the French have got a capacity to do intense combat operations at short notice. So that, I think, is special there between Britain and France. But I do not believe it's possible to have a close defence and security relationship with France while having a scratchy, difficult, distant economic relationship with the EU, because it just keeps throwing up obstacles and problems. And you see it in the area of um, defence industrial cooperation, which was one of the big flagship issues uh, when we signed those Lancaster House treaties in 2010 between Britain and France. And we had a series of things we were going to do together, build the next generation drone together, all kinds of big projects. Almost none of them happened, apart from uh, there's some good cooperation on missiles. But now the French and the, French and the Germans are pursuing the next uh, generation of combat military aircraft together. And Britain is now trying to build a competitor with Italy and Sweden and some others. So the British-French defence industrial cooperation has come to grief largely because of the tensions of Brexit. To finish off this great conversation, Peter, let's circle back to the to the EU, but from the EU angle, not the UK departure angle. Uh, and you say in, the, in your book, the EU without the UK is a different organisation with the fault lines more clearly exposed between member states. Presumably you would say those fault lines would have become apparent with or without Brexit. But what do you mean by that, these fault lines? I think a stool with three legs is always going to be more stable than one with two legs. Um, and there were three large countries at the heart of the EU until Britain left, Britain, France, and Germany. Now there are only two. And I think that um, duo, which of course has been you know, important in the development of the EU, is also a source of problems for the future because differences, difficulties between France and Germany will be more stark more evident than, than when the British were there to sometimes play a, a kind of brokering role between them. I think there are fault lines in the EU, I mean, uh, on economic policy, also on thinking about what Europe's role in the world should be. Should Europe be a regional power, basically, looking after its own backyard? Or should it have pretensions, as Emmanuel Macron would like, for Europe to be a, a serious global foreign policy player and indeed defence player. I don't think there's any unity on that. And I think Britain's departure probably makes that argument starker and the difference is starker than when we were a member state. Um, so the Europeans have uh, issues to work out themselves. They have just lost one of the two globally networked countries uh, who were members of the EU, leaving only one in France um, inside the EU. And there are some pretty big issues that the Europeans have to decide. I to my mind, these come together in this idea of European strategic autonomy, which has been a familiar French theme for many years. Uh, my question is strategic autonomy from what? Um, autonomy from Washington, which has long been the goalist idea, or simply more European self-reliance and resilience on things like supply chains and industrial policy, which is, I think, more the German idea. Until there is a single European view of that, I don't think that the EU can resolve its uh, differences over Europe's role in the world. Okay, well, we have to leave it there. Peter Ricketts, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.